So Lord, as we come to the scriptures this morning, we first just acknowledge your presence in this place. And we just say as a family, you are beautiful. You are glorious. Come on, there's no one like you in the heavens or on the earth. We bring you all of our adoration and all of our praise. And we thank you this morning, Lord, for your goodness poured upon us. Father, as we turn to your word, we just say we love this scripture. We love the God-breathed word. We ask that you would uh, illuminate our hearts, that you would brood over us as we study, challenge us, breathe on us, encourage the discouraged. We pray all the time, Lord, we want to be better disciples of Jesus today. And Lord, it's our, our vision that this region would bow her knee to Jesus, that we'd see a move of God in this place. And so Lord, we ask that you would use us to see your kingdom come here. And somebody say, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This week I thought, as I studied Ezra chapter 4, um, I thought about the, what the Scottish Covenanters. The Scottish Covenanters um, were pushing back against um, the Church of England. Um, Charles, in this time period, uh, wanted uniformity amongst the, uh, the United Kingdom. And so one of the ways in history that um, political leaders will fight for uniformity is to create uniform, uniformity in the religious world. And so the, the, the Scottish were, um, after John Knox, they embraced the Presbyterian model, which meant that they believed in local church eldership. They believed that the local church should appoint elders and that those elders um, should govern the local churches and that the, the church was ultimately governed by Jesus. Jesus was the king, and that was how he had set things up and how the scriptures taught the churches should operate. Well, what was always funny about um, about Rome, about the Roman church, was that um, so many times a government tried, government and religion got inter intertwined. Does that make sense? There was just this web. And so uh, when Charles uh, rose to power in England, he wanted uniformity amongst the churches, but the, the Scottish were saying, no, we believe actually that the local elders should lead us. Um, but Charles wanted to appoint bishops. He wanted to um, establish a common book of prayer. Now, the Scottish didn't like the book of prayer that, that Charles was trying to establish. And so, uh, in many ways, Charles was trying to dictate how the church should worship, and the Scottish covenanters were saying, no, um, God dictates how we worship, and we are going to honor our heritage. Now, what, this, what happened was um, there ended up being something like, oh, I put in my notes, something like 800, some say, 800 killed, um, martyred during this kind of onslaught of Scottish covenanters. So many incredible Bible teachers, incredible men and women of God who lost their heads um, for their belief that the king doesn't get to a point who their pastor or bishop should be. Because oftentimes when the kings begin to appoint pastoral leadership, it had nothing to do with whether or not a man loved God and loved his word. It was political. Ministry positions became uh, political um, modes of power. I'll say all that to say, I thought this week um, uh, about a man named John Brown of Priest Hill. John Brown of Priest Hill was a Scottish covenanter who sometimes is talked about as one of the founders of Sunday school. John Brown of Priest Hill wanted to be a preacher um, but he had quite a speech impediment. 
And so he never preached, although he was like great friends with some of the, the best preachers of the day. But what he did was he taught Bible schools to particularly poor kids. Um, he would gather them together and teach them the word. And some of these kids that he taught in his, in his little, what we would call Sunday school, some of these kids would go on to lose their head for Jesus. We're just radically in love with God. And so John Brown of Priest Hill was this kind of, on the surface, not influential man, but was doing an incredible work as he taught the scriptures um, to kids who were disadvantaged. Um, and so John Brown, in this period of slaughtering the Covenanters, was no major target. Again, he's essentially a Sunday school teacher. And so the, the persecutors, the men sent from the king, at their, uh, let me say this, John Brown, on the day he was married, to a woman named Isabel. The, the man who did the wedding um, was a very famous preacher and a close friend of John Brown. And as he married John Brown and Isabel, he said to Isabel, you have a good man to be your husband, but you will not enjoy him long. Prize him and keep linen by you to be his winding sheet, for you will need it when you are not looking for it, and it will be a bloody one. In other words, um, what was said was, the man that you're marrying is a man of God. Love every day you have with him, but keep a, keep a sheet by you to wrap his dead body because the day's coming when he'll lose his life for the gospel. Um, and so John Brown, at his wedding day, from these essentially Presbyterians, it's prophesied that he will lose his life in a bloody way um, because of his faith. So there was a day when, when the... Um, Persecutors, they were actually looking for, the man's name was Peden, uh, were actually looking for the man who did John Brown's wedding, who was one of his best friends. So they came to John Brown's house. He wasn't there, but they arrested John Brown and um, brought him essentially to kind of a town square scenario. And they are going to have John Brown put to death for his faith. The leader was a man named Claverhouse. And um, Claverhouse said to John Brown, uh, you have an opportunity to pray, so go ahead and pray. And John Brown began to pray. Now remember, again, he was never a preacher because of a speech impediment. But as he began to pray on the day that he was losing his life, there was no speech impediment. He just prayed with great power and authority. And the men that were getting ready to, to execute his execution looked at one another and said, Is he a preacher? I've never seen him preaching around. And they say, No, I've never, I've never heard this man preach because the speech impediment was no longer there. And so as he's praying, um, Claverhouse says to him, stop preaching. And John Brown says, I'm not preaching, I'm praying. You don't even know what prayer is. And then uh, he turns to him and says, um, okay, why don't you say goodbye to your family now? And uh, Isabel and the children are standing there. And John Brown um, looks at Isabel and says something like, do you remember what was prophesied? He didn't use that language. But do you remember what was said to you on the day that we were married? And Isabel says, yes. And he said something like, I only ask that you honor that commitment that you allowed me to give my life for the Lord. Claverhouse turns to the guards and commands them to shoot John Brown. All the guards are kind of stunned, though. They just heard this man pray, and they don't want anything to do with putting this man to death. They just kind of stand and cold stare him. And Claverhouse walks up and puts a gun essentially directly to John Brown's head and shoots him himself. History says that Isabel began to I'm thinking of one of the accounts from a book called Fair Sunshine. Uh, it's graphic that she begins to essentially clean up what would be spilled when someone shot in the head. 
she begins to clean him up and wrap his head in a cloth um, and begins to kind of wrap his body, prepare his body to be brought. And Claverhouse looks at Isabel and says, what do you think of your precious husband now? She essentially responds, I've always thought very highly of him, but I've never thought more highly of him than I do today. Um, and there are these seasons in history, I was thinking about this, there are just these seasons in history where persecution for the church transitions from personal um, Sometimes we experience personal persecution. An employer doesn't like you because of your faith, and you're kind of um, put on a, 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 the, you're stiff-armed. You're never going to get the raise. You're never going to get the promotion. Maybe you're made fun of or you're mocked. There, there are, are times in the Christian life where your family members dislike your faith, and so they call you ignorant or uneducated. There's personal-level persecution. And then there are these seasons in history where persecution transitions from personal to political. And um, we see this in the scriptures. Uh, we're we're going to see this today. Ezra, as he recorded the life of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, we read last week that as they went to lay the foundation, there were some of their enemies who came and said, let us help you build. And Yeshua and Zerubbabel, who were leading at this day, say, no, you don't worship God the way that we worship God. You're not going to help us build. And then it transitions into this kind of personal persecution. Do you remember the scripture says that they were discouraged, that they were trying to do interact, they were trying to do transactions, essentially like kind of hiring contractors and buying goods, and that their their enemies would kind of get in the middle of their transactions. They were bribing people to to mess up their work. And so they had this personal level persecution that they were experiencing as enemies tried to halt their work of seeing the temple of God rebuilt. But we're going to read today, and, and, and Ezra, as he records, wants us to know, but there, there are even seasons where it transitions from personal persecution to political persecution, and the church needs to know how to respond. And I think that the real emphasis also is that um, persecution typically comes as a church is building. As a church or a people group, the people of God have momentum as they set their hand to the plow with vision and they say, we are going to live for the kingdom of God. Sometimes the enemy has no option, the enemy being Satan, other than to try to um, begin to work and move in the realm of government to stop the work of God. And, And so we need to be aware of that and we need to, you know, it's always better to prepare for war in times of peace, right? Like, it's very healthy for the church to think through how we are to live under political pressure in a season where we're largely experiencing freedom. Uh, it's still helpful to, to ponder and to ask of the scriptures, what do you teach? How do you, Jesus, how do you want us to live? And so, it's a beautiful passage we'll read today. It's a bit confusing, to be honest with you, because... Um, you, what you need to know is when, oftentimes when you're reading, especially scripture and anything from ancient history, uh, chronology is not always king. And so, for instance, some people will look at the Gospels and say to the Gospels, they're inconsistent with one another, therefore they can't be the Word of God um, because the chronology doesn't match up. Well, well no, no ancient biography cared about chronology. Do you know what I mean by that? No ancient biography cared if the stories of someone's life came in order. They cared more about theme. And so if Jesus taught something and then something else happened in his life that kind of exposed the theme, they would gladly shake up the chronology to partner themes to try to teach you the lessons. 
They were more concerned with the lessons than they were with the chronological um, outflowing of a story. And so this morning, as we look at Ezra 4, Ezra is going to step aside from telling us just about Yeshua and Zerubbabel building, trying to rebuild the temple. And he's going to begin to talk about um, not only Yeshua and Zerubbabel, but he's going to shift into talking about his own leadership and Nehemiah's leadership. And so in a way, he's paused from telling us just about the rebuilding of the temple. And now he's talking about all three phases of Jerusalem being rebuilt. Now remember, you guys are going to have to hang with me because if you don't catch this, then you won't catch it. Um, remember that after, after Babylonian captivity, there were three waves of Jews returning to Jerusalem to see the city rebuilt. The first wave was Yeshua and Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, what we've been studying thus far. The second wave was led under Ezra, our writer today. And the third wave was led under Nehemiah. And so today is the first time where we're not just talking about Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Ezra is kind of zooming out, and he wants us to talk about the whole process for a minute. For a moment, he's going to pause and talk to us about um, the entire thing. Now, Ezra 4.4 reads this way. It says, The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then Ezra 4.24. So essentially what scholars say is these two lines of scripture from a literary standpoint that I'm showing you are parentheses. And so everything in between these two lines of scripture are kind of inserted into the narrative to teach us a theme. And then we're going to get back to the narrative of Ezra. So Ezra 4.24 says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius the king of Persia. So those two lines of Scripture say essentially the same thing, that in Zerubbabel and Yeshua's day, there was discouragement, there was a feeling of defeat, and the work stopped. Then in between what we're going to study today, he's going to tell us how the enemy tried to discourage the people of God in all three phases through political tactics. Does that make sense? If not, sorry, I ain't really explaining it. <laughs> Ezra 4, 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Ahasuerus um, would be Xerxes. Ahasuerus was um, Esther's husband. Remember? So, so after. So he's just left um, Cyrus and Darius, and now he's saying that even in Ahasuerus' reign, that would be Esther's day, they wrote letters to Ahasuerus to try to discourage the building. And then he's going to say, verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. Um, so, so if Ahasuerus is Xerxes, Artaxerxes is the leader that comes after Ahasuerus. So, so you see he's going from kind of king to king. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and, and Midrath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander of Shemshai, the scribe, wrote a, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shemshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations who grant, um, whom the great and noble Ansnabar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the providence beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter they sent. So here I want you to remember that uh, Ezra is a scribe, right? He's into documents. 
He's into documentation. He's into history. And so now he's told us that in the days of Ahasuerus, they sent letters to try to discourage the building. Now he's telling us that in the day of Artaxerxes, they sent letters to discourage the building. And he's going to give us the letter. I think that it's very likely that Ezra, as a historian and a scribe, has a literal copy of the letter that was sent to Artaxerxes. And now he's going to give it to us because, again, as a man who cares about history, he wants you to know what the letter said. This is what the letter said. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, uh, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in this city from old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finish, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting, now let the letter that you've sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from old has risen against, against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt the king? Then the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai and the scribe and their associates, and they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, that was a lot of information, but essentially to unpack what just happened there is that we are told that even in the life, essentially what Ezra is saying is even in the work of Nehemiah, even as we were just, we began to work on the walls, our enemies were still trying to oppose us through political means. And so he told us first, in the reign of Ahasuerus, they were sending letters trying to get him to stop us. And then in the, in the, raise, in, in the reign of Artaxerxes, they, um, they sent this letter, which said that the people in Jerusalem are rebellious, and if the walls are ever built, then they'll stop paying their taxes, essentially. Now, walls of a city do represent independence. Walls represent security. And can you follow that, that line of logic there? They're essentially saying, if you let them build their walls, they're going to feel secure enough to fight with you. If you let them build their walls, they're going to resist. And so Ezra gives us the official decree from Artaxerxes. Again, this would be during the time of Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes essentially says, he says, tells his servants, go search the records and study the city Jerusalem. So they go to study the city Jerusalem. And he says, we have found in our records that there have been times when Jerusalem has rebelled against kings. Then he says, but we've also seen that there have been kings 
who have ruled over them successfully. And Artaxerxes says, but stop the building and don't, don't allow it to restart until I give word. So it's almost as if he's saying that at times Jerusalem has been rebellious, but not all the time. And I want you to stop the building, but he kind of leaves this open door like, maybe, maybe I'll command that you continue the building as we continue to learn. Ezra wants us to see that the enemy of the people of God who are attempting to build, who are attempting to follow vision, who are attempting to be in line with God's decree and purposes, people who say, my life will be of service to Yahweh, that those people will have opposition. Now, Jesus says, remember that if they hate you, it's because they hated me. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that the world rejects me, therefore it will reject you. That if you follow me and follow me closely, it is inevitable that you will have enemies. And so what we're seeing in in the life of these people of God, post-exilic people of God, is that they have enemies. And these enemies, because they have not been able to fully intimidate and discourage the building based on personal persecution alone, these enemies are now going to avert to political persecution. So what do they do? They write to Artaxerxes and they say, these people are rebellious. Now, there's quite a manipulative tactic that's happening here in this text. Look at verse 14. They say, Now because we eat the salt of the palace, it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king. You call that class suck-up, right? Like, they're doing everything they can to cuddle up to Artaxerxes. We eat the, the salt of the king's table. That means that we're, it's, a, it's a kind of an idiom. We are blessed from the king's palace. You have cared for us, provided for us. We would never want to see you dishonored. Do you think they really care about the king? I don't think so. They're just after their political means. I don't know if you know, but po- politicians often manipulate. Um, <laughs> fact, okay? That's fact. Um, so they're manipulating here. They're saying, we love you so much, we never want to see you dishonored. And these people are rebellious, and these people are plotting against you. These people are attempting to pollute your kingdom. Now, the question it must be asked, is that what the people in Jerusalem were trying to do? No. They have no intent at this point of trying to overthrow the Persian Empire. They're following the decree of Cyrus, who said they could rebuild. And so um, this is what I would call the enemy's tactic to bring delusion. Okay, manipulation, you'll see this in personal persecution a lot, and and again, you'll see it in political. Manipulation, when the enemy comes to manipulate, it's often to try to twist reality and recast a scenario in a different light in order to reap the outcome that promotes the enemy's work. And so that's a perversion of the truth. That's delusion. I think as we think about spiritual warfare, and you need to realize that what Paul said in Ephesians 6 is that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We don't wrestle just with people. We're wrestling with spiritual agendas and powers, dark powers. And that Paul says, um, when he talks about wearing the belt of truth, that we should wear the armor of God so that we can stand against the enemy through spiritual warfare. I pray every day, I've been trying to pray every day over my wife and I, Haley and I, that we would be people who stand in the armor of God. And as I pray, God, help us to wear the belt of truth. I pray, Lord, keep us from delusion. 
keep us from manipulation. So many times the enemy comes to try to twist reality in our minds. And as he twists reality in our minds, he brings us to discouragement or fear or bitterness. I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to give us the, the helmet of salvation, the mind of Christ, and to gird us up with a, with a discerning mindset. That we would have discernment concerning what is the reality of our situations. Do you understand what I mean by that? We need, to, we need to guard against that kind of delusion. And be, be, be aware that oftentimes you find yourself in a sticky relationship, right? Maybe it's within the church. Someone within the church offended you or you offended someone and there's tension that you're trying to work through. That's just a part of church life. The enemy's goal is always to bring delusion in those situations, to begin to cast the person in a light that, that promotes demonic agenda. And so someone offended you because they worded something wrong, and all of a sudden to, you're, you're starting to think they're a total liar. They're a total, they're straight from the pits of hell. And you can't just say hell, you've got to say hail. Um, right? The enemy starts to delude. And so... That's what's happening here. And now Artaxerxes is going to fall in line with the enemy's agenda because his perspective of reality has been perverted through political tactics. He does say, well, he, he responds by saying, well, I do see in history that there are times where Jerusalem has rebelled, but I see in history where times is Jerusalem has been peaceful. Just stop the building and, and, until I give you further word. And so his posture is kind of like, I hear you, and maybe you're right. Let's just, just stop it. We'll, we'll sort this out later. And so they still have their way. Artaxerxes gives in to their tactics. Now, what this text is going to force us to think about is allegiance. Because the enemy here in the life of these people of God is twisting Artaxerxes on the basis of the allegiance of the people of God. In other words, he is, they are saying, these people don't fully serve you. We love the salt from your table. We never want to see you dishonored. But these people, they do not have the allegiance, they don't have allegiance to the king. They have another loyalty. Now, manipulation always has layers of truth in it. And that's one of the things that's super frustrating. Um, because these people in this season, they're not trying to be disloyal to the king. Although they are trying to be loyal to the plans and purposes of God. And there are times in history, think with me, um, well, we're just going to step in some mud for a while. It's, again, just a wonderful gift of mine. Um, think with me of Daniel, for instance. Daniel was an incredibly righteous man. Served multiple kings, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, we find him serving with loyalty and discernment and wisdom. He was such a gift to the kings who he served. But do you remember there was a season in his life where his, imagine this, he had enemies, were frustrated with him, and they couldn't get him to rebel, or they couldn't catch him on anything. And so what they do is they ask the king to release a decree, which essentially says, no one's allowed to pray to anyone except for this statue for the next 30 days knowing that this decree will cause a, a fork in the road for Daniel's allegiance. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? Daniel has been faithful to the king. He's been a discerning and wise, a gifted administrator for the king. The only way they're going to catch him is to say, you, 
you must now obey the king over your God. And Daniel, who's been faithful and loyal, do you remember what he does? He goes upstairs and prays three times a day with the windows open like he's always done. So, so what we find in the life of Daniel, and this is what we have to find in the life of the church. Again, good to talk about these things in time of, times of peace, but we need to think about it. There must be, in the life of, church, of the church, in the life of the people of God, we should be the best citizens. This is, this is scriptural. We should pay our taxes. Some of you guys don't like it. I'm sorry. It's a biblical command that we are, we are great citizens until they ask us to dishonor our God. And then we find in Daniel extreme rebellion. Okay, and so Christians throughout history have had to hold this tension. Now think about Peter, okay? Peter stands before the religious leaders and they say, you are to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, well, you're going to have to decide whether it's right for me to obey you over God, but as for me, I'm going to obey God. So we find it in Peter. Peter's going to tell his readers, as he writes epistles, that they should be God-honoring people. They should be good citizens. And then we're going to see in his life that he's a good citizen until. There is an until upon his citizenship. Until you ask me to honor you above God. Now, let's step in it for a second. Um, when we think about, for instance, we think about the Holocaust. And it's rather interesting to consider the, the German church. I don't know if you know this, but Germany um, has quite a theological history. Like the greatest seminaries uh, of the day were German, great thinkers. Uh, Germany had a real Christian history. And for, but as Hitler rises to power and we start to see the government acting out evil, many in the German church turn to Romans 13. And Romans 13 says this, 1 through 3, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And so as, as Hitler's rallying the troops, the church, uh, the, the leadership in Germany, the Christian leadership, said to the Christian people, Paul said that we should be subject to governing authorities. Sit down and shut up. And the church did largely sit down and shut up. But we need to have, uh, number one, if we took the time to exegete this passage, do you guys remember what exegete means? That means to take the time to carefully um, try to exposit, to draw out what Paul is really saying. If we exegeted this passage, many have shown that we would see that what Paul is saying is that rulers are not a terror to good conduct. That rulers, um, a th government is given from God to bring peace in the land. And that rulers are to be subject to righteousness. And that rulers are not a terror to people who act righteously. They bring peace and righteousness in a land. Therefore, if a ruler begins to usurp the authority of God, and the ruler is bringing terror upon those who are acting out righteousness, for example, if the Timbooms are hiding Jews from being murdered, and the rulers are persecuting them, killing their family, therefore, that ruler has usurped the authority of God, and I would say Romans 13 would be exempt. That's not what the passage is talking about. So if we exegetically work through that slowly, we would say, wait... 
God-given authority, God-given government is supposed to act out righteousness. Therefore, if the Chinese government tells Chinese Christians they can't have Bibles, we will smuggle them in. Because they are not, the government does not exist under the authority of God. And so, think with me about Exodus chapter 1. This is sticky, but I I need us to understand this. Think about Exodus chapter 1. We're talking now about the, um, the midwives who were told from Pharaoh to throw away all the Hebrew boys. One, Exodus 1, 17-21. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They feared God, therefore they couldn't do what their government told them to do. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. What did they just do? They, they lied to the government to protect lives. Verse 20, So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, God blessed them with families. So we find this tension exists all throughout Scripture, and you and I need to understand it. We need to think biblically and coherently because there may be a day we we experience political pressure, and we need to make sure our loyalties are in the correct alignment. So the midwives, this is, this is the Tim Boom, Corey Tim Boom scenario, right? Betty, her sister, Tim Boom scenario. The midwives are going to lie to the government to save the lives of children, and God will bless them for it. Now, in times of chaos, historically, again, think of Germany. The church is saying, you've got to do what the government says. And what, what they're doing in this text in Ezra is, is the persecutors are trying to, to kind of tease out the convictions of the people of God, like Daniel's enemies did, to make the people of God choose. Will you, abo- will you honor the king, or will you honor your God? And, and as Christians, we honor God. Amen. We should be the best citizens this nation has ever seen. Until. Right? Until. Now, I've, I've, I've got some more things to say, but I, but I want to say this quickly. Historically, it's easy to paint it in this light to say Christians have to choose whether or not they'll be loyal to God or whether or not they'll be loyal to government. Now, that's a really easy choice, right? Like most of us as Christians will say, you know, we, I, I love our nation. I believe in our nation, honor our nation. But if our nation has leaders who ask me to dishonor Jesus, I don't really care. That's not a choice for me. I'm, I'm going with Jesus. Um, most of us would say that. The problem is, and as you study Revelation, for instance, you start talking about the mark of the beast, which, just so you know, is like not the vaccine, or it's not um, barcodes, or it's not, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to realize that every generation has an obsession with end-time imagery without an obsession with Christ Jesus, and that gets really weird, okay? And so the mark of the beast is primarily not about whether or not you love Jesus or your governments, whether or not you love Jesus or your comfort. Okay? Whether or not you love Jesus or being left alone. And those we see in in Revelation who um, refuse the mark of the beast are unable to do what? To like buy food. And and so it's easy for us to think 
oh, if they tell us that I have to choose God or government, I'm choosing God. But what about if they tell you you have to choose God or your job or your home? Choose God and go to prison. And, and that's, that's really where this goes. What you need to know historically is that Christians are the most persecuted people group in the entirety of the world. Okay? We have more martyrdom today than we've ever had. When, again, Chinese pastors who love Jesus hold underground services and disciple and make lovers of Jesus, they do so as they resist their government with consequences on the backside. And as Christians, we don't say to them, honor your government. We say to them, keep serving Christ. Whether or not hardship comes, the, many, the enemy in times and in seasons will use political movements to crush, to promote evil, to hinder God's kingdom. In those seasons, the people of God must have backbone. For instance, this is still America, so I'm like allowed to say what I think. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but there's something in the American church where I'm supposed to like be very politically correct. Um, I don't care, so I'm still allowed to talk. Um, when you start talking about COVID and the political pressures that were applied, I... COVID was a new season for us. We had to think through some new things. I understand that there was a very real threat, and maybe still is. And so I, I am not willing to stand and say to every group of elders and pastors, because we believe, again, that the church should be led by elders and pastors, I'm not willing to say to an elder, a group of elders, who would say, my congregation is older and more at risk, we're going to do things a little differently, I'm, it's not in my heart to stand and say wrong. I'm, I'm, I just, I'm just not going to do that. In the same sense, if COVID ramps up again really badly, um, I've told our staff, my conviction thus far is um, we are going to gather together as the church because Jesus commands it, but we may gather outside if it really is dangerous. That I'm, I'm okay. Um, and, and so I'm not, I'm not utterly spit on the government every church should rebel. I'm, I'm not saying that. I am saying that we should use wisdom. But what I want to say is that when men of God, for instance in Canada, who say we are going to continue to have church even though our government says no because Hebrews tells us we should, I think that the church should honor men who are arrested in front of their children because they chose to continue to serve Jesus even when the government said no. I think the church should get behind that. Um, and I do believe, I do believe that elders, that pastors and elders should gather and pray, God, what is wisdom in this season? Give us discernment. But when those pastors and elders ask for wisdom and discernment and feel like they have leadership from God on how they should move forward, the government has nothing to do with that. And so it's not the role of the government to tell a church when they should meet, how they should meet, what they need to wear to meet. Um, And now that 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 was an easy one, guys. That that, that were, there was some political pressure. Um, nobody ever knocked on my door. I I, I know that people in, I know people had opinions about what I did or didn't do. I know that happened in the region. You know me well enough to know I don't care. Um, so 
I say that with humility. I, I just can't be hindered by people's opinions. Otherwise, I'd sit around and cry all day. Um, which I do once a week. Just kidding. That was an easy one. But it may come in the future that we're tested further. Where we've got to decide, does this honor Jesus? Are we willing to risk our comfort to honor Jesus? Um, and I would say, you better decide that now, <laughs> right? Um, I, you, I, you, teach your, you should teach your kids, your teenagers. You don't decide whether or not you're going to save yourself for marriage when you're in a dark room with a girl. Right, right. Like, or alcoholics, don't decide whether or not you're going to be sober as you sit at the bar and someone's passing you a beer. Like, you make those decisions when you're thinking clearly. You pre-decide how you will act in certain situations, so that the pressure of the situation does not pervert or manipulate or twist your heart. You guys hear what I'm saying? I'm suggesting that from the text of Scripture, and I think this is very much what Ezra wanted us to see. We better pre-decide that we will be the best citizens. We will love neighbor. We will serve and pray for our country until she asks us to no longer serve and love Jesus. Then we will be the worst rebels this nation has ever seen. Right? Like, that's a very Christian perspective. Worship team, come for me. We are, we are believing for the kingdom of heaven to come. And Christ didn't, his first coming didn't bring a political kingdom, it brought a spiritual, but I promise you his second coming is going to bring a political. You know what I mean by that? He's going to bring righteousness and justice and peace. And so we are longing for another kingdom. We have a separate, a higher set of law. We have a, we have a greater commandment, love and purity. And so we need to remember that our lives belong to another king a higher king and we must serve him with all of our hearts and that king said unless you pick up your cross and follow me you're not worthy of me that king said any man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is unfit for my kingdom that king challenged us to count the cost who builds a tower without first sitting down to consider whether or not they have the time and the money and the resources to build that tower our king said you should count the cost before you decide to be a part of my kingdom because it will cost you something we have another king his kingdom is coming it is advancing Therefore, there will be resistance. There will be demonic assaults. There will be seasons where there's political pressure. And I suggest that we decide today, not tomorrow. We decide today who we serve. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me. First, as we close today, if there are some of you who just, you know, if you felt this word touch you at all and you're like, man, I just want to get in the altar and, and say to the Lord, my life is yours. My allegiance belongs to you. I will be loyal to you above all else. If that's you, I want to ask you to come. I want to ask the Lord just to honor that sacrifice, the Lord to meet with us in the altar.
There are some of us in the room who have never given your life. You never really surrendered your life to Jesus. We want to tell you that there's no better decision than, than saying to Jesus, I love you and I want to serve you. As you give your heart to Jesus, all of your sins will be forgiven. You will belong fully to the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It matters what Christ Jesus did yesterday. And he bore your sins on the cross of Calvary. He wore your punishment so you didn't have to. And so if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, I want to invite you to come as the altars are open. I want to invite you to bow your knee to the king of heaven so that you could experience forgiveness and newness of life. Third, there were a few words that came forward this morning that, that someone's dealing with lupus, that there's some dealing with lower back issues, someone's dealing with a kind of a tingling in your fingers, you feel like you're losing mo- uh, movement in your hands. I felt this morning, I just say this quickly, there are some here who are experiencing condemnation in this season. The enemy is whispering in your ear, you haven't done enough, you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough, you're not worthy of Christ. Some of you are experiencing extreme condemnation. I'm going to ask you to come to the altars this morning. We want to ask that the Lord would silence the voice of the enemy over your life. I want you to hear me say that we love Christ because he first loved us. You need to rest in the love of God. All right, the altars are open. Come. If you want to just say to God, I choose today that my loyalty belongs to you, I want you to come. If you need healing, I want you to come. Our altar ministers would love to pray for you. If you want to give your life to Christ, 